intentions of our hearts today that you may be lifted up over anything we have walked in here with over any idol that has controlled us in our lives this week over anything that is above you we lift you higher and higher and higher and put our eyes and our focus upon you today Lord may those not just be empty words on a screen May they not even be just words that pass through our lips, but they may they be the intentions of our hearts. We love you. We thank you for these moments that focus us on you. Lord, may our eyes be off of this world, and may they be focused on you today. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. And celebrate and open your word now in the name of Jesus we do this. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Well, today we are in for a special treat. Gilbert Foster is um, a part of our denomination of growing healthy churches. He is a Scotsman, and you will discover that as soon as he opens up his mouth and speaks to you, who has been helping people and churches for many years. In fact, he has this uncanny knack of causing people to rethink who they are and what life is all about as he calls people to avoid apathy in life and to embrace the adventure that life is and that God has created it to be. Uh, Gilbert is the co-founder of the uh, children's charity, When I Grow Up, which means that he lives and he breathes the achievable goal of kicking, and this is, this is an audacious goal, but he has it, of kicking extreme poverty off the planet in our generation of people. Um, I met Gilbert first in 2003. Uh, Pastor Jim and I really got to know him a lot more in 2005 when we went to uh, Hawaii with him on a pastor's conference. And yes, we did work on that pastor's conference, all right? Gained relationships and value as well. Um, But I got to know him a little bit more then when he was called in 2003 to Redeemer's Church in Reedley, California. And um, he has been an incredible blessing to that community. Now he lives in Fresno, um, which means that he is very glad to be here in Stockton because it's 127 today in Fresno. It's only 88 here in Stockton. Praise God for that, right? He um, works now with the American Baptist churches. We call ourselves Growing Churches now with the recruitment and development um, consultation uh, that's headquartered in the Bay Area. And if you meet or you hear Gilbert and don't think or feel anything, then you likely are not alive here today. He is going to bring a wonderful message to you, so why don't we give Gilbert Foster a warm, warm welcome. God bless you, my friend. Uh, it's, it's good to be here. I'm just off an aeroplane from Kenya and Africa, and my body's not sure where it is, but my mind's telling me I'm in Stockton First Baptist Church, and it's a joy to be here. But as Brad says, you'll notice from my accent, I ain't an American. And this is July the 4th weekend. We maybe see some things a little bit differently. I mean, it's something to do with taxation and a tea party and a big misunderstanding back in 1776. Uh, You call it independence. 
and we call it treason. <laughs> so Brad took a real big risk in having the pulpit on Memorial weekend. Is this Memorial? No, uh, Ju- July the 4th weekend. I don't even know what Sundays you call it, guys. You get so many holidays. Uh, he took a real big risk on July the 4th weekend to ask a British guy to be at the pulpit. In fact, this could be your last weekend here. You don't really know. But whatever, it's a huge honor and a huge privilege to be at First Baptist Church Stockton. I, I would love to speak about poverty. I really would. I mean, it just it's in there, okay? Since I came to this building, which was about 8 o'clock this morning for the first service, 2,057 children have died needlessly because of a lack of food. In our generation, that's happened. Every three and a half seconds, a kid drops dead because of hunger-related illnesses. So I would love to speak on that there, but that's not the hat that I wear. So take that hat off and put it over here. The hat I wear this morning is as the recruitment and development consultant for Growing Healthy Churches. And for all of my time with Growing Healthy Churches, as a pastor, then working on staff, 15 years or so, First Baptist Church Stockton has been significantly involved. Pastor Jim, mentor and a coach to many of us pastors. And now with Brad as a key pastor in this key church. And uh, when we think of California and the worrying decline of the church and its effectiveness, You know, you only live, what, an hour away from the Bay Area, which is the highest unchurched ratio in North America. Or overall in the United States, where only 12.7% of the population go to church. And the most alarming statistic is the huge exodus of 16-year-olds to 34-year-olds from the church congregations. When you think of all all that's happening and, and the worrying stats that we read... The story of First Baptist Church Stockton is a different story. And it's a story that we are constantly praying becomes an even greater story as you move through a period of transition and look into the next few decades of effective ministry. Uh, What an impact you guys could have in this city and beyond this city. Knowing the work that you do in the state, knowing the work you do in partnership with Growing Healthy Churches, and knowing the work you guys do in global missions around the world. What an impact you are making and will continue to make in the decades ahead. I want to thank you for your support, for your prayers, for your involvement, for your missions dollars, which help Growing Healthy Churches do what we do. And we stand behind Pastor Brad and his team and you, and you guys and this congregation in prayer and any help that we can give to see another many, many several decades of increasing effectiveness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So thank you, Brad, for the invite to come and preach this morning. And I'm going to preach, and this preach is going to reveal some of my feelings about July the 4th. And my car is parked facing the exit, and I'm out of here. Okay? I want to preach on idolatry. And you need to understand, a Scottish preacher... If anybody's ever been to Scotland, you'll realize we don't have any straight roads. Everything twists and turns. And my preaching is just like my roads, okay? 
I'm going to twist and turn and you're going to wonder, where the heck's he going now? But just come with me. And maybe you don't understand everything I say, but if I seem to be having a good experience, hopefully that rubs off on you, okay? Some existential experience for the next 35 minutes or so, okay? And hopefully we'll, we'll end up somewhere together at the same time. And then we can all go home and watch the American woman beat the Japanese woman in the Soccer World Cup. And as a British guy who loves my English Premier League, I can't believe I'm going to watch women's football and cheer for America on. I can't. Something's gone wrong with me, okay? I must have eaten too many In-N-Out burgers and become American. If I was to summarize for you what idolatry is, it is a mistake about reality. Hence my connection to July the 4th, okay? We have a crying need to be in control of our lives, whether as individuals or as a country. But we are not in control. And for our egos to survive, we become dishonest about reality. And to make us feel that we are more than we are, we submit to idolatry. Perhaps the best commentary on our illusionary living is a book on political theory by a philosopher named Dr. Seuss. He wrote a story about someone who was very much mistaken about how in control of his life he was. It's the story, Yertle the Turtle. And Yertle rules, or so he thinks, over a little pond of turtles. And one day he decides his kingdom needs extending. And so there went out a decree that all the turtles should be stacked up to become Yertle's throne. And the king lifts his hand and the whole pond scrambles to obey. First dozens and then hundreds. He could see for miles from the top of his new throne. Yertel thought his throne was secure as a throne could be. But it came to pass at the bottom of the turtle stack there was an obscure powerless turtle named Mac. A Scottish turtle. The plain little Mac did a plain little thing. He burped. And his burp shook the throne of the king, writes Dr. Seuss. And Yertle the turtle had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Yertle together again. And even if you are Yertle VIP or MVP or PhD or CEO or BMOC, big man on campus, you're just one burp away from reality. We live mistaken about reality. And to make us feel better, we assign powers to an object of our imagination to get us what we want, which is control of our lives, that our lives will turn out the way we want. So we bow down to the idol of busyness, or the idol of family, or the idol of pretense, or the idol of comparison, or the idol of power, or the idol of the free market. Or the idol of another Jesus. And we think that that idol exists to serve us. But in truth the problem with idolatry is that we begin to serve our idols until we are trapped. And the idol sucks the life right out of us. So we make an idol of work. And we work so long and so hard 
that it ruins our health. We make an idol out of money, and we're willing to break the law or cut the corners to get more of it. We make an idol out of love, and we allow our lover to exploit us or abuse us. We make an idol out of family, and we become enablers of dysfunctional behavior, and we overlook bad behavior for the false serenity of family unity. We make an idol out of our country, and we trust in the freedom that it espouses, despite the cost of that freedom, and having never defined as a nation what that freedom is for or to. To practice idolatry is to be a slave. A slave to whatever idol you are bowing down to, even if the idol is yourself. So what's wrecking your life? What is it that's consuming you? Are you bowing down to the idol of money? Are you bowing down to the idol of success? What about the idol of being attractive? Or the idol of family? Or the idol of busyness? Or the idol of comparison? Or the idol of religion? We are worshipping people. We can't help it. There's a real candid Bible verse just to get us started. We'll come back to the Bible in a few minutes. But in, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, the scriptures say, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Okay, so turn to the person next to you and ask this question. Guess the number of places of worship in our country. Turn to the person that you came with or the person that's next to you and say, I'm going to take a guess at the number of places of worship in our country. And according to the American Religion Data Archives on their most recent survey, the number that they came up with was 250,402. So just about, just over a quarter of a million places of worship in America. <laughs> but I think they got it wrong. Oh, they counted the number of buildings called churches or cathedrals or temples or mosques. But when some of you leave this service, you're going to go home and you're going to sit in front of your couch and you're going to watch a 40 or a 42 or a 48 screen TV. And truth be told, it's that 40 inch screen and what it shows that gets the most of your hours. And truth be told, you can't turn it off. Or tomorrow, many of us will head to sit behind a desk or a computer screen, or we'll work with an engine or a patient or a customer. And some of us will find that our ultimate sense of purpose, our identity, our worth, comes from what we do rather than who we are. Behind that desk, in that office, around those customers, you will sacrifice the best of your time, the best of your effort, the most of your emotional well-being. Even you'll sacrifice your families for your identity at your workplace. Even more, there's another building not too far from here where all the walls have mirrors. And the priests 
and the priestesses dress in spandex. And many of the people in there are driven to distraction to please the God that's worshipped in the fitness room, in the gymnasium, in the workout place. And then there's also the mall or the, or, the, or the stadium or the golf course where people find meaning, comfort, purpose, security. You see, we all treasure something above anything else in our lives. We just do. We give our devotion to somebody. We offer our sacrifices to something. We look for the blessed life somewhere. Calvin, the great Christian theologian, not the underwear designer, okay? Uh, Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. I like the writings of Timothy Keller. He's a pastor in New York, church planter, theologian. And he wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. And some of this preach comes from that book. Uh, And Dr. Keller writes these words. We take a good thing, like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and our hearts turn them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives. We see them as giving us significance, security, safety, and fulfillment. Powerful words. We take a good thing and we turn it into a supreme thing and in so doing, it consumes us. I mean, how many women are consumed by always being on a diet? Always watching your weight? Always worried about how you look? How many of us men are consumed by being the man? Being able to fix the problem? Got it in control, got it together, being the strong one, always cool, calm, and collected. Now, this is not a new problem. For centuries, humans have been living wrecked lives because they've bowed down to false idols. And most times, it comes out of pursuing something good, a career, a family, security, happiness. 20th century, there was a British writer Christian in value, I'm too sure if Christian in conviction, but George Orwell wrote these words, what will kill us is that we will get ourselves enslaved by something we hate. But at the same time as George Orwell wrote, there was another man called Aldous Huxley. He was a humanist, not a Christian. And he countered what George Orwell wrote, and he wrote these words, we will be enslaved by by something we love. And that's what will kill us. And you love your country. And you love your church. And you love your raiders. Eh. Just unsure how many raiders fans there are in the building. How many? What you what you call a drug rink in Oakland? A huddle. Okay. Uh, So Moses is up the mountain. He's receiving what we call the Ten Commandments. The very first commandment. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. 
first one, right out of the box. The human heart is an idol factory. And God says, be really careful what you fall in love with. Someone sent me a story about what's called the bathtub test. And during a visit to a mental asylum, a visitor asks the director of the institution what the criterion was that defined whether or not a patient should be institutionalized in the mental asylum. Well, said the director, we fill up a bathtub and then we offer a teaspoon, a teacup, and a bucket to the patient. And we ask him or her to empty the bathtub. Ah, I understand, says the visitor. A normal person would use the bucket because it's bigger than the spoon or the teacup. No, no, says the director. A normal person would pull the plug. How many of us need a bed near the window? We're mistaken about reality. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29. And we're going to read a fascinating story. And the way that the story is told, that alone makes it fascinating. So many layers of truth in this remarkable story, okay? But I want to look at this story to help us see how bowing down to idols makes us slaves. Genesis chapter 29. If you haven't got a Bible, just listen along to me, okay? And we're going to walk through this text a little bit, okay? And you'll need to read some of it yourselves, but I'll try to read quite a lot of it, okay? Uh, Genesis chapter 29, verse 1. So Jacob moved on and came to the land of the eastern people. He saw in the field a well with three flocks of sheep lying beside it because the flocks were watered from that well. Now a large stone covered the mouth of the well, When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone off the mouth of the well and water the sheep. Then they would put the stone back in its place over the well's mouth. Jacob asked them, my brothers, where are you from? And they replied, we're from Haran. So we said to them, do you know Laban, the grandson of Nahor? We know him, they said. Is he well? Jacob asked. They replied, he's well. Now look here comes his daughter Rachel with the sheep. Then Jacob said, since it's still the middle of the day, is it not time for the flocks to be gathered? They should water the sheep and then go and let them graze some more. We can't, they said, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone is rolled off the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel arrived with her father's sheep for she was tending them. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of his uncle Laban, and the sheep of his uncle Laban, he went over and rolled the stone off the mouth of the well and watered the sheep of his uncle Laban. Then Jacob kissed Rachel, began to weep loudly. When Jacob explained to Rachel that he was a relative of her father and the son of Rebekah, she ran and told her father. When Laban heard this news about Jacob, his sister's son, he rushed out to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban how he was related to him. And then Laban said to him, you are indeed my own flesh and blood. So Jacob stayed with him 
for a month. Pause there. It's a story of a man called Jacob. And as we meet Jacob at this stage in his story, his life is in ruins. He's lost his family. He's lost his inheritance. He would never see his mother or his father alive again. Jacob at this point is cynical and bitter. Life can do that to you. So he decides that he wants to go and spend some time in an area where his relatives were from, hoping maybe to connect up with some of his relatives. And his uncle Laban hires him as a shepherd. But then his uncle sees that he has management potential. And so he offers him a management job. And he says to him, just because you're family doesn't mean that I shouldn't pay you. Name your price. Look at verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, Should you work for me for nothing because you are my relative? Tell me what your wages should be. And Jacob says to his uncle, who's now his boss, The wages I want, I want Rachel as my wife, your daughter. Look at verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The older one was named Leah, and the younger one, Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel had a lovely figure and beautiful appearance. Since Jacob had fallen in love with Rachel, he said, I'll serve you seven years in exchange for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban replied, I'd rather give her to you than to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob worked for seven years to acquire Rachel. But they seemed like only a few days to him because his love for her was so great. The Hebrew text says literally that Rachel had a great body. But the translators want to kind of G-rate it a little bit. She was hot. All right? And Jacob was in love. In fact, he was so in love that he offered seven years' wages just to get her. Now, in Near Eastern culture, it was usual to pay a price for your bride. They called it a dowry, okay? (laughs) Kind of like like in our country, we pay after we get married. But that's a whole other story, okay? Uh, uh, But but seven years' wages was extremely high. Like, Like, this was an enormous price. She must have been like, I think, like Catherine Zeta Jones hot. You know, or, or whoever defines hot for you, okay? But, uh, but uh, no matter how, how hot she was, seven years was neither a good deal for Rachel. I mean, that's a heck of a long time to wait for your husband. Nor was it a good deal for Jacob, be a slave and work for seven years. The only guy winning was his trickster uncle, Laban. Jacob should have walked away from the deal. Or work the deal down to two years. I mean, normal dowries are a year's wages. Maybe two years. Never three years, never four years, and absolutely never seven years. But Jacob agreed. Now, you're in the story. And as you think about this, you're saying to yourself, why would he agree? That's a question that arises in your soul. Why would he agree to seven years? I'll tell you why. His life was empty. That's why. 
He'd never, ha- he'd never had the love of his father. His beloved mother was dead, and so was her love. And as Jacob looked at his life, here's what he said. If I had her, finally something would be right in my miserable life. If I had her, it would fix everything. When I get Rachel, I'll be happy. And so everything about him, his future, his happiness, his fulfillment, his forgetting of the past, his cancelling out of his failures, of his father's failures, everything about him as a man, especially in a male-dominant, status-driven culture, everything was fixed on Rachel. He'd lived in the shadow of his brother Esau, who could do no wrong and got everything. He had been downgraded, ignored, even despised by his father. He owned no land, no business, no means to look after himself. His status was zero. Honor was gone. Shame was all that carried him. Seven years? Was it seven years for love? Perhaps, or maybe more lust. It was seven years for redemption. Redemption. Rachel was not his love. Rachel was his savior. We'll come back to that, okay? You see, we all want to be heroes, don't we? We all want to feel that our life matters in the scheme of things. We've done something. We've contributed. We've been somebody. And if it needs me to work for seven years for my scheming uncle or my scheming loan company or my scheming boss, if it's work all hours for the next few years to get noticed, if it's jump from this job to this job to this job to try to climb up the ladder, if it's send the kids to this school or this college and I'll be in debt for years because of it, fine. We want one day to be heroes. Have the junk of our lives redeemed. Be somebody. Seven years, we'll do it. So here's my question. Who's your Laban? Who are you willing to serve to get your Rachel to get your redemption. Now, the story continues. Consumed by feelings of Rachel will solve everything, the seven years went by pretty quickly, cold showers included. But Laban had figured something out. Laban had clicked that this guy was so sold out to Rachel, he could abuse him even more. Idols have their pimps. Middlemen who work the deals. And Laban's pimps are always asking for more. And so the story takes a strange turn. Look at verse 21. Finally, Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my time of service is up. I want to have marital relations with her. So Laban invited all the people of that place and prepared a feast. In the evening, he brought his daughter Leah to Jacob. And Jacob had marital relations with her. Laban gave his female servant Silpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. In the morning, Jacob discovered it was Leah. 
So Jacob said to Laban, what in the world have you done to me? Didn't I work for you in exchange for Rachel? Why have you tricked me? It is not our custom here, Laban replied, to give the younger daughter in marriage before the firstborn. Complete my older daughter's bridal week. Then we will give you the younger one too in exchange for seven more years of work. Anybody got a boss like this? And what was Jacob smoking? How did you go to bed with the wrong woman? Oh, you know how it happens. Some of you, maybe. He'd been drinking all day. The party was on. The booze was free. And when he wakes up the next morning, crikey, he'd consummated his marriage with the wrong wife. He'd not got Rachel. He'd got his, her older, ugly sister, Lehah. The text says, look at verse 17, Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form. And some suggest that this means Leah was cross-eyed. <laughs> we don't know. Or, or literally, it could be unsightly in some ways. The point's clear. Lehah is not the haughty. Okay? Her father knew that she was, he was going to struggle to get her off his hands. For years, he'd wondered, what's he going to do? And Laban found his solution, and he tricked Jacob into marrying his older daughter. <laughs> well, let's pull this aside for a few minutes. There's so much to talk about. Okay, and normally I've seen in the first service, I preach in African churches, so give me like an hour. And these white churches give me 35 minutes. I mean, it's pathetic, guys, okay? You've got 24 hours in a day. What's wrong with 40 minutes even, eh? Okay? And there's more in the story than we can look. Well, we can stick with Jacob and we can ask, why did he fall for this? And why did he work another seven years for Rachel? And there's only one word that can happen here, the word addict. Addict. He was addicted. He was addicted to loving Rachel for his redemption. And this love narcotic led him to foolish, destructive choices. Addiction is not just drugs and liquor. So now, Lehah becomes the central figure in the narrative. She's the girl that nobody loves. Lehah even more has a hollow in her heart, as big as the hollow in Jacob's heart. And now, Lehah begins to try to fill that hollow. And she tries to do it something similar to how Jacob had tried to fill his hollow. Put your hope in something or someone as your savior. And for Lehah... It was children. If she has children, Jacob will love her and her life will be complete. Even more, she'll have something that her hot sister can't have because she's barren. And Lehah now becomes a baby-making machine. Baby one, baby two, baby three, baby four. Boys all in succession. But Jacob still loves Rachel more than her. If you go to verse 30. So, for Jacob to please his true love, not Lehah, but Rachel, he sleeps with Rachel's maidservant and gives Rachel a baby that she'd always been wanting. And then Lehah becomes barren, and so she gets Jacob to sleep with her maidservant to give her 
another baby that she so wants. And something big is happening in the text. You've got to read chapter 30 yourself, okay? The narrative spirals down and down and down and down. Jacob, Leah, Rachel, all of them are screwing up their lives, doing what God would not want. None of them look like models of spirituality and integrity. So why the places are they in here? Surely scripture is supposed to show us how to live well, how to live right, how to live holy, how to live good, godly lives. And here in his book, Keller is brilliant, but Christianity is even better. And Jesus is absolutely, amazingly supreme. You see, the Bible wasn't written with God at the top of a ladder saying, if you try hard, if you try hard or summon up your strength and live correctly, you can make it up here. That's not how the Bible was written. Instead, the narrative of the Bible repeatedly shows weak people who don't deserve God's grace, don't even seek God's grace, and don't appreciate it even after they have it, to point out that our lives are very much like these guys' lives. But we're still in the story. You're not counted out even if you screw up. God's grace is so much bigger. And God's plan is so more powerful. You see, through all of our lives, there runs a cosmic disappointment. We all want something that cannot be had in this world. We all know things in this world never hold their promises. All of us live with huge hopes. But in the morning, it's always Leha. It's never Rachel. You noticed how the world does that to you? Our idols do not satisfy us. They don't quench the thirst. They don't fill the soul. They don't heal the aches. No person, no job, no looks, no possessions, no success, not even the best of these can give our souls all that they need. But we hook ourselves up to philosophies, realities, and ideals day in, day out. It's 10.38, I've got to finish, okay? But let me finish with a story. Okay. Ken Davis tells a wonderful little story. Maybe you've heard it. Hopefully you haven't. It happened, he writes, at the traffic lights near the edge of town. A man gunned the engine of his huge Harley-Davidson motorcycle as he waited for the light to change. You might have been tempted to stare at this guy and he would have enjoyed it. A filthy rag was fastened around his head, and from beneath it, a matted tangle of oily gray hair spilled down the back of his leather jacket. Images of skulls and bones glared from his clothing, and on his bare forearm, he bore the image of a menacing black widow spider. Pastor Jim in a day out. And as he waited at the lights... An elderly man in a lime green moped pulled up beside him. The ringy ding ding 
of the moped was drowned out by the roaring thunder of the Harley. Bye. That's some motorcycle you got there, the old man shouted. Mind if I take a closer look? Scowling from behind his oily beard, the biker gave him the once-over. If it turns your crank, old timer, go ahead. The old man was a little far-sighted, but he wanted to take in all of the scene, and so he leaned his face right over the bike, examining every inch. After about a minute, the old man leaned back up rather red in the face, and he said, I bet that old motorcycle goes fast. No sooner were the words out of his mouth than the lights changed, and the biker thought he'd show the old geezer what a real chopper should do. He gave it full throttle, and within 30 seconds, the speedometer read 199 miles per hour. He chuckled with satisfaction. Suddenly, he noticed a dot in his rearview mirror, a dot that was growing larger. Something was gaining on him. What could it be? He slowed down to get a better look, and whatever that thing is, as it flashed past him so fast, he couldn't identify it. The thing disappeared over the horizon, whipped around, and came right back at him. And as it zipped past him, he recognized the rider. It was the old man on the lime green moped. How could this be? The biker took another look into his rearview mirror, and there was that speck again coming back at him, growing larger. The biker tried to outrun it, but it couldn't be done. It was a mute point, only seconds as the moped slammed into the rear of the Harley-Davidson. The collision destroyed both bikes. You could hear the impact for miles. The biker extracted himself from the mangled steel pretzel that had once been his beloved Harley-Davidson. But the old man had fared even worse. He lay groaning beneath the blackened, smoking remnants of his moped. Even the hardened biker was moved with compassion. He knelt beside the old man's face and softly asked, Is there anything I can do for you? And the old man choked and coughed and replied, Yes. Could you please unhook my suspenders from your handlebars? <laughs> Very vivid story. Very vivid reality. You see, you and I hook ourselves on to some very strange things, including, as Christians, some strange views of our nation and its ideals. And here's what you and I need to run to and grab onto with both hands. Listen to how C.S. Lewis puts it. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy the probable explanation is that I was made for another world, something supernatural and eternal. No human relationship, no human endeavor, no human high, no human habit can bear the burden of Godhood. Everything we run after will either decay, be imperfect, or fail, whether made by ourselves or made by our country. You cannot find true life putting the weight of your deepest hopes and your deepest longings on an idol, whether it's on your wife, 
on your family, on your career, on money, on religion, or on national pride. But the invitation from God on this July 4 weekend is to replace the idol. And you don't just repent of having an idol. You don't just ask for forgiveness. Idols need to be replaced. And the replacing that needs to happen is Jesus needs to become so big in my heart that there's no room for another idol. Jesus needs to become more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol is. To deal with our idols, we need to fall in love with Jesus all over again. Because if he fills our hearts, our deepest hopes are satisfied. If he fills our minds, our deepest ambitions are met. If he fills our souls, our deepest longings are satisfied. Because if he becomes bigger, our idols loosen their hold. So with energy, with determination, with focus, with passion, we need to reorient the entire focus of our lives towards Jesus. I was a pastor of a church. And as Pastor Brad says, the church story was good, 200 to 1,000. But it became my idol. And the only way I could get rid of that idol was to replace it with something else which was a bigger Jesus. And in my eyes, that bigger Jesus couldn't look at a child who was going to die because of starvation and do nothing. And I had to loosen that idol by doing something else. You and I need to remember that he is worth reorienting our lives around. We need to remind ourselves of all that he is. You and I need to fall in love with Jesus again. Let's stand for closing prayer before we have closing song. And as we stand, God, as we stand, God, we stand as people who confessingly say, we attach ourselves to things and others to find our purpose and meaning. We grab onto things to define our success or make us feel worth. But these things that we grab onto to be our saviors don't have the power to save. But you do. And you are big enough and strong enough and loving enough to say, come and find your satisfaction in me. Come and trust me and live your life attached to me, not attached to an idol, even if that idol is something good. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for not allowing you to be supreme in our lives. And we've taken you off our throne and we've placed others on the throne. We've trusted in others for our meaning, for our security, for our fulfillment. But they're not delivering, God, because they can't deliver.
but you can. So come, and today and this week, reveal yourself to us. And if we seek you, we will find you. If we seek you with all of our heart, come and replace the idols and be bigger. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.